All right, well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. We doing okay? Four of you. Good. I hope the rest of you are good, too. That's great. Uh, welcome back, LifePoint family. My name is uh, Kale. For those who are new here, guests, I've had a chance to meet some of you this morning. We're grateful that you're here. So guests, I want to encourage you to look in front of, the, in front of you. The QR code's in front of you, lpguest.com. That's a resource we've developed for you. You can utilize the QR code or just pull out your smartphone, type in lpguest.com. Uh, we'd love for you to take a moment there. You'll find the message notes for the morning there. Also, there's a guest information card there. We'd love for a chance to connect with you, not only in person, but digitally, you can give us some feedback on the morning. That would be fantastic if you take just a moment and do that. Uh, secondly, I want to bring up, I mentioned Trunktober uh, last uh, week. So October 29th, this is our sort of trunk or treat event, right? We have it here at the parking lot outside. It's a great time to connect with our community, but really what makes this uh, meaningful, what helps it be awesome are a few things. One, uh, folks signing up to do a trunk, right? So last week we went from three trunks to six trunks, which is a 100% improvement. I'm grateful for that. Also, it leaves us about 500% short. So uh, if you are going to do a trunk, I'd encourage you to pull out your smartphone even now on the app, on the events tab, hit the register for a trunk on uh, the Trunktober event there. You can do that today. Let our kids leaders know you're going to do that so they know how many trunks to expect. It really takes about 35 to 45 trunks to make this a successful event. Also, grab these invite cards. They're out at Guest Central and the yard signs. You guys crushed it taking yard signs last week. We took all of them, so we ordered more. Um, and so grab some of those on your way out today. It's a great way just to invite folks to come and be a part of, of that time together. And then uh, finally, I, I challenged everybody last week throughout the course of this life group term. I'm going to bring this up almost every week, right? Until early December. Uh, that's when life group term ends. Just to be praying for one person in your life who doesn't know and love Jesus. Just for an opportunity, this life group term before the term is out. God, will you give me an opportunity to share Christ with that person, be praying intentionally for that person in your life who doesn't know and love Jesus. Obviously, I hope you continue praying after that as well, but that's sort of the challenge of the next 10 weeks. Um, before we jump back into our message this morning, I, I want to take a little bit of time, a uh, little bit of a sobering way to start the morning, but it's a sobering thing. So over the weekend, I'm sure many folks are aware that um, Israel has declared war on, as far as I understand, has said we are at a state of war with uh, Hamas. And so I want to, when we, when this happened, right, when Russia invaded Ukraine, we took some time just to pray corporately as a church. And so I want us to take a moment here and pray this morning, really in three ways. Um, one, just for comfort from the Holy Spirit to the families right now that are grieving, and that's going to happen in, on both sides. Um, I, I was struck this morning, I saw some images just of children, right, being held by you know, parents, and um, right now there are kids grieving parents, there are parents grieving kids, there are brothers and sisters grieving brothers and sisters, there are, you know, folks grieving grandparents, the loss of grandparents. So um, let's just pray. I think it grieves the heart of the Father to see uh, human beings made in His image blowing one another up. And so um, let's pray for the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, let's pray and beg God by all means possible if there's a way for this to be peacefully resolved, that it doesn't result in a long war, which seems like what it is headed for. And we trust God's sovereignty in all things, but I think we should and are allowed to appeal and say, Lord, will you bring it to an end? And then number three, um, just praying uh, really for the believers there, right? There are brothers and sisters in that area right now who, as things darken, 
the opportunity for the light of the gospel to shine brighter will be there and that those Christians would not retreat from the moment but would endure and, and step forward in that moment. So let's take a moment just to pray uh, together. Father, we are grieved by what we see here. Um, my Father, I think it, it grieves your heart again to see people made in your image killing one another. So Father, we, we pray, uh, we ask for the comfort of the Holy Spirit for those who are grieving right now. Uh, Father, those whose lives have, from an earthly perspective, just fallen apart in the last 48 hours. Um, and we ask, God, that you would bring the comfort that only the Holy Spirit can. Father, we beg you, uh, we, we trust you, we pray your kingdom come and your will be done, but we do beg, Father, if there is a way, um, for this to be resolved peacefully, by all means, please, Lord. And then, Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters who are in these areas, that God, right now, there's gonna be an opportunity in the midst of that chaos to bring the light of the gospel. And, and Father, for those who are bringing relief work and relief aid, for those who are uh, ministering to neighbors and to family right now, Father, will you make the gospel just shine bright through them? And will you give them the strength that they need? Father, to, to suffer well, to endure well, and to minister well in the midst of the conflict. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. All right, if you've, if you've got a Bible, turn to Revelation 17. Uh, we're in week eight, believe it or not, of this series that we're calling New. And uh, we're studying our way through the book of Revelation. And as we go through the book of Revelation, I, I hope uh, the reason we've called it new, right? That's where it's headed, to all things being made new. And we desperately want and need that for Jesus to come and wipe every tear from every eye uh, of those who are his. And so here's the big idea of the series, something we've said every week, that Revelation is more about present hope than a future calendar, right? And the Revelation is, is a letter, right, that is written really by Jesus, through the Apostle John to the churches in the early Ro in the Roman Empire in the first century. And the Christians there are suffering under intense persecution, intense pressure from the Roman Empire. Some estimates say as many as 40,000 Christians have been killed just in these few years when John is writing. And so you've got uh, Rome that is uh, putting intense pressure on believers in the first century. And, and Jesus then comes to John, who's been exiled because of his faith. He's living on an island, right, where they send criminals and he gives him this vision. God gives him this vision of, hey, this is Jesus as he is right now. I know things don't look really good right now, but this is Christ as he is right now in heaven. And he gives him a vision of this is where it's all headed. This is the end of all kingdoms on earth that set themselves up against God and his kingdom. And this is how God's kingdom is going to come and how Jesus is going to make all things new. So, so John, tell the churches, tell the Christians, I know it's dark, I know it's hard, but don't give up. Keep your eyes, as we just sang, fixed upon Jesus, right? Look full in his wonderful face. Don't give up. Don't give in to the pressure around you. Instead, stay firm and fixed on, on Jesus. And so in the midst of all that, right, we come to Revelation 17. And I'm just going to just give you a heads up, right? It is perhaps like we've, we've had some heavy stuff over the last few weeks. Revelation 17 is perhaps the most provocative in some ways of, of the scenes in Revelation, right? It's, there's a woman sitting on a beast, right? And it, it, it's a little jarring and, to be honest, maybe confusing in some ways. And so I'm going to read through this. And as we go through towards the end, I'm going to try to unpack it. And hopefully our goal would be listen to the images. Don't, right? Let the images do their work. 
right? The reason it's symbolic, they're metaphorical, right? But they correspond to real things, to reality. And the images bore their way into our mind and in our souls in a way that just simply saying it wouldn't. And so, let's look at Revelation 17, verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, and that's a reference back to chapter 16, the seven bowls of wrath and God's judgment on the world. It says, who had the seven bowls came to me and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. Again, this is symbolic, metaphorical. We'll unpack it as we go. And he carried me away into the spirit, or in the spirit, into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. This is a reference back to the beast that we saw come up out of the sea, right, in chapter 13. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery. So who is this woman? Babylon the Great mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Now, a couple of quick things. Once again, just keep in mind, like you read this, you go, whoa, what just said, right? Symbolic, metaphorical, I'll, I'll give you the hint, right? The woman, this represents Babylon. Babylon, this ancient empire, in turn represents the Roman Empire. And much greater than that represents all kingdoms and authorities and civilizations that set themselves up against God and his kingdom. Okay? But we'll unpack that more. One quick note as well. It's easy to read this. And some folks have said this. They're like, man, you know, this woman, it's, she's evil sort of personified as a woman here. That seems like anti-women. And people have said that about this passage. But here's what I would say to that. I understand. I don't think that criticism holds merit when you zoom out and recognize evil has been personified as both men and women in Revelation. The beast, the dragon, Satan himself, the antichrist personified, right, as men. And the other prominent woman in Revelation is the church, the bride of Christ, right? So you got women personified as, this, as Babylon, even. You've got women personified as good, the church and Israel. You've got men who are personified both ways. It's pretty equal, right? It's symbolic, and I think it's all shared around. Now, let me summarize for you verse 7 through 13. John looks at this woman sitting on the beast, and he's kind of stunned. He looks at it, and he says he was astonished, perplexed. And the angel says, why are you stunned? I'll explain to you what this is about. And he really talks more about the beast. He says the seven heads and the ten horns, they represent these kings who are going to, to come. And he talks about the beast dying, who is and who was, but will not be, but then will come again. And it's sort of this counterfeit resurrection, right, to Christ. And eventually he says all these kings team up with the beast, and they go and make war on the Lamb. And you can kind of guess, well, how does that turn out for them, right? All of Revelation can be summarized in some ways by Jesus wins, right? The lamb has conquered through his cross and then eventually through his resurrection, which is what we see in verse 14. It says, they, the kings, the beasts, will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them for he is Lord of lords and king of kings and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. Right? The book of Revelation repeatedly tells us the way this all ends is in the victory of Jesus and in the victory and vindication of those who have suffered for Jesus. Then, verse 15, and the angels, <coughs> excuse me, and the angel said to me, 
The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. Sitting on many, sitting on something, being seated upon many waters means you have authority over them. So he's, he's telling us something here, right? <clears throat> this Babylon character has authority over many people, many, city, many cities, many nations, and many kingdoms. We'll come back to that. And the 10 horns that you saw, verse 16, plot twist, okay? This gets really interesting. And the 10 horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. So the beast is giving power to the woman, to this Babylon character, but then all of a sudden turns on her, right? And then it says, for God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. So plot twist here, two things you see. One, and I love the way multiple commentators said it this way, evil always turns on itself and implodes, right? That's the nature of evil. Every movie we've ever watched where you have like good guys who team up with them, right? What do they do? The good guys and good ladies, when it gets hard, they sacrifice for one another unto death, right? They give their lives up for their team, for their brothers, for their sisters. And you're like, yes, what do the evil people do? They team up only as long as it's advantageous for them. The moment they get what they want, they turn around and backstab each other, right? And it's every man for himself. That's what happens here, right? The beast is holding up Babylon until no longer, right? And just, it's a reminder too, um, Babylon represents people. Satan hates people. <laughs> he hates people made in God's image. He's not there to bless us, right? He entices us to then kill us. And that's what happens. Evil turns on itself and implodes. The second thing we should notice God is sovereign over all of it. And I know that's hard sometimes for us to believe. We look around at the world. We look around at the conflict happening right now and go, God, where are you in the midst of it? And yet it says, God put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose. Even in evil turning on itself and imploding, God is overseeing that, governing that, his hand sovereign over it. Now, look at chapter 18. We're gonna read the first five verses. After this, I saw another angel, John says, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory, and he called out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, and this is where the application comes for those of us in Christ. It says, come out of her my people, lest you take part in her, in her sins. Don't, don't live that way. Don't, don't join with Babylon. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. When the Bible says God has remembered in that way, it means, and he's come to put things right, to judge. All right, here's what we're gonna do. All right, that, that was a lot. <laughs> so we're gonna do four things. We're gonna talk about four things here in the time that we have left. And it's all there in your notes, so don't feel the need. You don't have to write these down super fast. We're gonna define Babylon to understand what is Babylon. Defining Babylon, the attraction of Babylon, the call out of Babylon, and the end of Babylon, all right? We're gonna define Babylon, 
We're going to talk about the attraction of Babylon. Why is, this, why is this lifestyle so attractive? The call out of Babylon, the call on believers, no, come out, right? And finally, we're going to take a look at the end of Babylon. All right, let's define Babylon. To understand what we're looking at in this passage, we need to ask this fundamental question. Who's the woman? <laughs> Who is this woman that rides on the beast and why is she called Babylon? So if you know your Bible, right? If you know your Bible, you know Babylon refers to this ancient kingdom that came under King Nebuchadnezzar, came in and wiped out the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom, right? Destroyed the temple, carried off all the temple articles, and then exiled the people of Israel out of their homeland into Babylon. So nobody in the Bible liked Babylon, right? <laughs> Babylon becomes sort of a byword, a catchphrase in the scriptures for evil kingdoms, right? The evil of humanity setting itself up against God. Now, here... You go, so is it referring to like Babylon specifically? No, Babylon's been dead basically for hundreds of years. That kingdom has fallen. So you're like, so, so who are they referring to? There are a ton of very clear references to the Roman Empire, right? So the immediate reference in a sense is to the Roman Empire. So in the section I summarized for you, the angel says, hey, Babylon sits on seven hills. What city was associated with sitting on seven hills? Rome. The woman has authority over nations and peoples, right? She sits on many waters. The Roman Empire sat on the Mediterranean, had authority and influence over many kingdoms, many nations, many people groups. Not only that, but the angel says, yo, Babylon led these people groups into idolatry, into luxurious and opulent living, into sexual immorality. When you read into the history of Rome, you notice, yeah, yeah they conquered people, but those people groups often willingly and enthusiastically participated in emperor worship, in sex, in, which came with sexual immorality and cult prostitution. They, the cities would literally compete with one another for who gets the honor of building the biggest temple to the emperor so we can worship him because that came with Roman citizenship and Roman favor and Roman money and Roman power and prestige. And he says, look, he's, th this Babylon has led the world astray into immorality and idolatry. The Roman Empire also says the woman is drunk with the blood of the martyrs. Rome has, again, killed 40,000 Christians. Throughout its history, Rome persecuted Christians mercilessly. They burned them at the stake, crucified them on crosses, and fed them to beasts in the gladiatorial arenas. So the temporary sort of like right now hey, who's Babylon? Is, yeah, the Roman Empire. One of our pastors, I love it, he said it so well, I laughed when I was reading his, uh, his notes on this, his manuscript. He said, if Babylon, uh, if, if John could have used air quotes around Babylon, he would have, right? He'd have been like, hey guys, Babylon, right? Wink, wink. Because he can't just write Roman Empire, right? Because the Romans are reading this. And so he says, okay, that's the clear sort of temporary fulfillment, but it's also more than that. Yes, does the woman represent Babylon? Yeah. Does it represent the Roman Empire? Yeah. But again, you got to zoom out and say, this represents every kingdom, every civilization that sets itself up against God and his kingdom. Daryl Johnson, in his book, Discipleship on the Edge, says it really well. He says, guys, the word Babylon goes all the way back to Genesis 11, to the Tower of Babel. And what was the Tower of Babel all about? Let's build ourselves a tower to the heavens. We'll save ourselves. We don't need God. So Babylonian, right, living. Babylon, it's representative of really humankind's desire to say, God, I don't need you. <laughs> Through wealth and luxury and achievement and sex, I will live how I want, 
when I want and I don't need you. I will find fulfillment and salvation these other ways on my own. So it's, it's representative of that and representative of every kingdom and every civilization that sets itself up against the kingdom of God. In a few chapters, the, the new Jerusalem is coming. The literal city of God is coming where people joyfully worship God and he reigns. This is like the anti-city of God, right? Babylon represents, right, all the forces set up against God's kingdom. Now, Let's talk about the attraction of Babylon. That's what Babylon is. That's what she represents. What is the attraction of Babylon? Why is this so important that we're given a vivid image of this? Note how she's described. She's not described as, obviously, that's crazy evil and is going to lead you to your death. She's described as, she's beautiful. She's stunning. She's dressed in purple and scarlet and gold. She's intoxicating. She entices the kings of the earth to commit immorality with her. She intoxicates them with wealth and pleasure and materialism and sexual immorality. That's what marks Babylonian living, if I can say it that way. It's an addiction to wealth, an addiction to more, an addiction to money, addiction to sex, right? I will live how I want, when I want, do what I want with whom I want. That's Babylon in a sense. And if we're honest with ourselves, there's an attraction to that. It entices us. That stuff appeals to the distorted desires within us. And, and look, listen, some of those desires are legitimate. There's nothing, nothing wrong with wealth in and of itself. Sex is a good thing when put in its proper place. But I bring this up to say, look, Nobody gets addicted to wealth. Nobody gets addicted to money and sensual. Nobody gets addicted to sex because they look at it and go, well, clearly that's evil and it's going to lead to my death. It's always presented as, this is going to fulfill you. You need this right now. This is going to bring you such fulfillment. You don't need God. You can build a tower to heaven yourself. It's as old as the garden, right? The enemy comes in and tells Eve what? God didn't say that. You don't, you're not going to die. You can be like God. You don't need God. And there's something that, if we're honest, is so attractive, right? Some, something so attractive about that to the human heart. And so part of what John is doing here, and Jesus is doing right through John, is saying, guys, we need, to, we need to see that and recognize it for what it is and how attractive it is, how it entices us. I, I hope you're not sitting there going, man, whew, it's a good thing we don't live in Babylon. That would be terrible. Wouldn't it be awful to live in a society that was addicted to wealth and pleasure and sex and all of those things? That would just be awful. And I hope, right, I don't know that I have to give you a lot of examples for us to see, like, are we addicted to more? Yes. <laughs> I mean, gosh, much of our life is spent trying to keep up with the person next to us. If I just have more, if I get a bigger home, if I get a bigger car, if I get a nicer car, if I have more money, that'll satisfy my soul. Sex, God, I mean, it's, it's everywhere. This week I was reading about AI girlfriends, right? Let me, hold on, let me give a clarification on that, right? So Morgan was right here and I was like, yo, I just came, like, I just saw this. I'm going to read this, not because I want an AI girlfriend, but because I want to know what we're up against here. I want to know the enemy's latest tactic for ensnaring men, right, in stupid things. And ladies, AI boyfriends are probably right around the corner, right? But literally, it's an avatar. It's nothing fundamentally different. It's just a new tactic, right? It's an avatar, a virtual woman who literally looks at you and says, I am here to please you in any way. Just type it in the chat box. And, okay, this is a bit of a tangent, 
That's not a real relationship, okay? And guys, let's be honest, right? There's some, for all of us, men, women, there's something enticing about someone looking at you going, I'll never say no about anything. I'm just here to please you. But we all know deep down, that's not a real relationship. You get married to someone, right? Your spouse tells you no about more than just sex, right? About a lot of things. You tell each other no. You have differences of opinion. You argue with each other. You have to communicate and compromise. That's part of sanctification in the Christian life. That's part of being a human being and growing through that. And when you follow Jesus, Jesus tells you no a fair bit, right? He, he tells us no. He doesn't give us what we want when we want it. He gives us what we need when we need it. Jesus is committed to our ultimate eternal good, not our temporary wants. Because honestly, guys, and everyone can see this. If we step back, you see it in yourself. I see it in myself. Many of the things I want in the moment are not good for me long term. So we need a, we need a God. <laughs> Praise God we have a God who sometimes says no, right? It's like the kid who says, wouldn't it be awesome if I just had candy all the time? It's like, yeah, right up until it rots your teeth, right, and gives you diabetes, and for us, it's like, wouldn't it be awesome if I just was never told no? Yeah, right up till it rots your soul and kills you. That, but that's the attraction of Babylonian living, okay? And Babylon's all around us. I, so let me be clear about something. I'm not saying America is the new Babylon. I don't, some commentators have really tried to like, so what evil empire today is Babylon? And I, I don't know if that's the point. I think the point is, one, I'll say, yeah, we've got a lot of things screwed up in our country, and we have a lot of good things about our country, right? There's a lot of things we do well. The point is, Babylon finds its way into every great civilization, because <laughs> it's rooted in sin and our sinfulness. So the addiction to wealth and sexual immorality, that shows itself in every great civilization, and it is attractive. It calls to us, and it's easy to go down that road. It is. It's why Jesus said, wide is the gate, <laughs> Broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many walk down it. Narrow is the gate, right? Small is the gate. Narrow is the road that leads to life, and few find it. So what Jesus is doing here with the attraction of Babylon is he's saying, hey, guys, recognize this is enticing, okay? It's enticing. Around the world, Babylon often presses and squeezes through outright persecution of believers. Here, it is less often outright persecution, and it is far more enticement. Just, you don't, you don't need to suffer for Jesus. You, you, don't you know it's bad to say no to your desires? That's emotionally unhealthy for you. <laughs> don't, you don't need to suffer. You don't need to endure. Right, just give in. Take your eyes off Jesus. Wealth, sex, opulence, luxury, that's what's gonna satisfy your soul. And so here's what leads us right into number three. So what are we supposed to do with this? It's why Jesus says, come out of that, right? The call out of Babylon. Go back to verse 4 and 5 in 18, chapter 18. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. So here's what, here's what Jesus says to us. Here's what the, right, the voice from the throne says. Guys, I know it's attractive. I know it's easy to live that way. I know... But Satan's not enticing you with those things to then bless you, right? He's doing that to kill you. So come away from it. Live in Babylon, but don't live like Babylon, right? Live in the midst. And this is where we need to talk about. So what does that look like, practically speaking? Do we just physically remove ourselves from the world? Morgan and I spent some time in Amish country this summer, right? Just trying to kind of intentionally slow the pace. And look, 
There's a lot I admire about the Amish and their desire to live in a holy way, right? They're Christians. But I, I fundamentally disagree with some of the way they've approached that, right? Because it has become basically, hey, physically remove yourself from the culture around you, right? Sort of draw a fence around yourself. I don't think that as Christians we're supposed to do that. I think that this is, hey, we've got to live in the culture. We're called to be a city on a hill, to be witnesses to the culture. But we're not to live like the culture. To be in the culture, but not of it. To live in Babylon, but not let Babylon live in us. And to live in, yes, we're in Babylon, but we live with a very different set of values. And so, practically, I think we fight materialism rather than embracing it. Rather than just blindly embracing the narrative of the culture around us that says, if you just get more, you will be happy. Guys, we've all heard this stuff. Financial advisor who said, I met with three different Christian families and all... One's income was this much, one income was this much, one's income was this much. And all three families said, I don't think we have enough money. (laughs) There's no magic number, right? So we we fight that. We say, Jesus, I need help recognizing that just getting more all the time is not going to satisfy my soul. Lord, help me to know when, yeah, we have enough. Let's be generous. Let's give. Let's meet needs rather than just feeding once. We fight it rather than blindly embracing it. It means we flee from sexual immorality rather than diving headlong into it. Brothers and sisters, every single day we are faced with choices, whether it's up here in the thought world or clicking on a button, right, or hitting a a phone. We have choices every day about whether to walk down that path or to shut it down and say, Lord, I need help, right? (laughs) Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me. Every single day, we we choose to fight that. We choose to love people and serve them when they make fun of us or even when they persecute us or isolate us or pressure us. And rather than fighting fire with fire, we humble ourselves and we suffer and we love as Christ did. I was talking with a guy just this week about this call. He and I were talking about the call on, on husbands as Christians, right? Ephesians 5 says, love your wives. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Give yourself up for her. And, and he was sort of exasperatedly talking about that call. And his, he's like, dude, he's like, this love is going to kill me, right? And in that moment, it just felt like one of those moments of the Holy Spirit, right? I, I said back to him, I said, you're right, man. And that love killed Christ. That type of sacrificial love led Jesus right to the cross where he died and gave up his life for you and me gave up himself and then God raised him from the grave and he promises, look, you follow me. It's going to mean the old Jew has to die (laughs) and daily you pick up your cross, deny yourself and follow him. That's not possible apart from the spirit working in your life and in mine, but that's what we're called to is to say daily, I've got to die to self. Lord, it's going to kill me, (laughs) but you're going to raise me to new life. I'm going to have new life in you. I know that my life and my joy and my eternity is found in you. So can I just ask you to do a little bit of a heart assessment here? Where are you today? What's your life marked by today? If it's, maybe some of you are here today and you say, man, I wouldn't even call myself a Christian. And honestly, that luxury, <laughs> entertainment, wealth, pride, sexual immorality, you're like, I'm, I'm chasing after all those things hard. Then today the call to you is, man, turn from it. Stop trying to build the tower to heaven and recognize that you don't have to work your way to heaven. Heaven came down for you. Jesus came down. Turn away from this stuff. Reject it and call on Christ. He stands ready to save today. Your life can change today. Some of us, maybe you're here, and, and many of us maybe, you would say, yeah, I mean, I, 
I call myself a Christian, but Kale, this life of Babylon sounds all too familiar. And much of that stuff marks my life. Today is a warning for you. There's a warning and there's good news. Warning, don't keep walking down that road. Don't, don't give yourself some false sense of security that, well, you know, I grew up a Christian. My family's a Christian. I prayed a prayer a long time ago, and, but none of my life shows the fruit of any of that. No, there's a warning. Don't fool yourself. You say, what's the good news? The good news is there's still time. <laughs> you have a pulse. You're breathing, so there's still time. Turn. Reject it. Say, Lord, help me. I want out of this stuff, right? Make me new, and that can start in your life today. Draw a line in the sand today and ask Jesus, to change you. Do a little bit of a heart assessment. And then finally this, the end of Babylon. All right, let's talk briefly about the end of Babylon. Verse 1 of 18 says, after this I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory, and he called out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. All right, I find it so interesting that right before the call to come, come out of Babylon is a very graphic description of the demise of Babylon. You say, why is that? I think in part because sometimes we need some motivation. We need, we need something to snap us out of it and say, yo, this dream that you're living, this stuff that you're enmeshed in and you can't see it, you need to see where this road leads. It leads to death. Sometimes I've told you, right, sometimes I take walks in cemeteries, fairly often, right? And partly it's just beautiful. There's one here, it's got trees and it's really, really pretty. And I know that sounds weird, but their leaves are turning and it's a quiet place to take a walk. But secondly, there is something extremely sobering and clarifying about looking down and having a visual reminder, this is where life on earth ends. And someday my life on this earth will be represented, will be symbolized by a dash between two numbers. What do I want it to represent? And so I think in this, right, it, it's a little bit this, hey, snap out of it. If you're walking down the road that leads to Babylon, snap out, look at how it ends. Great is her demise, Fall, she's falling. She can't provide, right, this life, it cannot provide you with joy or satisfaction or life. Eventually she will fall. The beast turns on her. The beast himself and the dragon are judged. God will judge every person, as we've talked about, who exchanges him for his stuff. So don't do that. We all do it. Repent of it. If you make wealth and you make sex your God or anything or anyone else, you're going to find that eventually those things disappoint you. They end. They're temporary. There is only one with the power and the authority and the ability to give you life and joy and satisfaction and life eternally, and that is Jesus Christ who came, who lived in your place, and who died on the cross and rose again. And here's what's so beautiful, right? You see, the good news of the gospel is, you see, I'm how do, I, how do I have that new life? How do I become a citizen of the new Jerusalem and not a citizen of Babylon? By looking to the man upon the cross. It's not by your good works. You, we're not gonna stand before God someday and say, here's my resume, God. I'm awesome, aren't I? Didn't I, didn't I live a great life? We'll stand there and say, Jesus died in my place, took all of my pride, all of my sin, all of the Babylonness inside me and nailed it to the cross. <laughs> praise Jesus. Oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. <laughs> praise him. Jesus, thank you for washing me clean. 
So I'm going to pray for us and I'm going to invite you, right? If you're here today and you're in either of those places where you say, man, I call myself a Christian, but man, I've been walking the road of Babylon. Turn today. Ask Jesus for a change. Or if you're here today and you say, man, I've never committed my life to Christ. And what you just described describes my life. That can change starting today. Let's pray. Father, I do pray uh, for all of us here. God, I pray a few things. One, Lord, I know that these images are kind of grotesque and they're stunning in some ways and I think that's the point. Father, I pray that from this day forward, for those of us, anytime we are tempted to walk down those roads, that God, this image would come to mind. We'd see the, the woman Babylon sitting on the beast and we'd just be reminded of where that road leads. And we'd turn from it and we'd run to you, our hiding place, our refuge, our ever-present help in time of need. And Jesus, I pray, uh, God, for, for those who are here this morning who need a change this morning. Maybe some who, are, who would say they're believers, maybe some who are not. And if this is you, I'm, I'm inviting you to pray with me. If, you, if you're saying, Lord, I, I need I need a heart change. I need a life change. You can pray with me. Maybe it's the first time. Maybe it's a recommitment this morning, but you're saying, Lord, I need help. And today I stop trying to build the tower to heaven. I just give my life over to you. I reject these things. I turn away from these things, Lord, and I ask Jesus for the forgiveness of my sin. And I place my faith today, my whole trust, my whole life, in you, in your hands. The man upon the cross who died and rose again. Jesus, thank you for saving me. Father, we love you and we thank you that when anyone offers that prayer in faith, you answer it, Father. You answer it affirmatively. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Church, we're gonna, um, we're gonna sing here in a moment, but before we do that, we're gonna end out our message time and really the best way I know how. We're gonna take communion together and we're gonna celebrate the blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of our sins and the body of Christ broken for us. So if you don't have the elements with you, go ahead, raise your hand. Don't be ashamed, right? Just raise your hand. If you missed those, our team will be by to give those to you. As the team comes by, I'll say just a couple of things. One, if you're joining us from another church body this morning, we welcome you, right, as a brother or sister in Christ to take communion with us, celebrate what Christ has done. If you're here today and you would say, I'm learning, but I don't yet know Christ, this is one of the few things we'd ask you to abstain from. Because when you take communion, you're saying, Jesus' blood was shed for me, his body broken for me. You're claiming Christ, that he is yours and you are his. I'll give you a moment just to pray. Confess anything you need to the Lord, prepare your heart, and then we'll take communion together. Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, says to the church there, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, 
The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So in remembrance of Jesus' body broken for us, we take it together. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so in remembrance of Jesus' blood, shed for the forgiveness of our sin, and also in anticipation of his return until he comes. Take it together. Amen and amen.